0: My name is Ellen Webb and it's spelled E-L-L-Y-N-W-E-B-B and I wrote that my reality still feels surreal since last March.
1: My name is Talia Abbey, T-A-L-I-A-A-B-B-E and my reality is staying home with my friends.
0: Hi, my name is Lily Bedell, L-I-L-Y-B-E-D-E-L-L and my reality is working hard and loving hard. My name is Emily Fleming, E-M-I-L-Y-F-L-E-M-I-N-G,
2: and my reality is dependent on close friends and family and technology.
1: Yes. Hi, my name is Allie Thompson, A-L-I-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, and my reality is navigating young adulthood during a pandemic.
3: Good luck with that one. I and know. That's like you guys got ripped out. I, I'm graduating
0: in a week and I don't know I'm what I'm doing after that. Nobody does. <laughs> like,
3: what is there to do? Like, everybody's crazy. Oh
0: Ready? God. Hi, my name is Kiera Wood, K-I-E-R-A-W-O-O-D. And my reality has been changed drastically, but I've been able to find the positive out of the negative.
1: My name's Cody, C- oh, yeah. C-O-D-Y. And I wrote that it would really suck if it was a simulation. Nod your head when it's going. It's going. My name is P.A.U. P.A.U.L. I wrote. I am crazy. Why? I don't know.
4: Perfect. <laughs> <It's terrific>. Perfect. <laughs>
3: Since last March, our reality has changed. The COVID-19 pandemic has forever shifted the way we live our lives and how we interact with the world around us. Now, as we begin the slow process of returning to normal, whatever that means anymore, we face a difficult task, reasserting our reality in a post-pandemic life. But will things ever really be normal again? Will we ever return exactly to the way things were before? Major global events like COVID-19 not only shift who we are as a people, but the ways in which our society operates.
4: I'm Jonah Chester.
3: I'm your host, Jennifer Fields, and you're listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Over the next four episodes, we're going to use material culture practices and methods to explore four key objects. In this episode, we're examining maypoles.
4: For many European cultures, the maypole symbolizes the dawning of spring. It, alongside the annual May Day Festival, marks the end of winter, a time of cold, darkness, and death. So as COVID-19 vaccination rates continue to climb and the world slowly begins to reopen, we ponder the question, what is our maypole? And how do we process our emergence from the COVID-19 pandemic?
3: But first, what exactly is a maypole in 2011 Ann smart martin a professor of american decorative art and material culture at uw madison told me the simplicity of the object belies its underlying cultural significance
0: it's a tall skinny thing to the sky and that in itself suggests it's about the heaven it's about nature it's about sort of connecting to the earth um, so already you're sort of thinking, okay, well, what is it about that? Is it a tree? Is it some kind of symbolic tree like uh, some of the Scandinavian or German cultures thought of it as? Was it something to do with the male body? But let's think about the ribbons for a minute. We've got long, we've got a big pole, and then we've got people wrapping around ribbons. Well, ribbons is something I think is is really kind of another one of those great objects because they have all these meanings and think about it, they're just little selvages of just little strips of of, um, fabric, textile, but they can be used in so many ways. Wrapping the maypole was a big one, Um, um, flapping off a tambourine, all these other ways in which ribbons can move and dance in the wind, and other ways sort of um, moving through time and place and decorating the body. Um, So they have all this power in their own way.
3: For 47 years, Sandy Spieler was the Artistic Director of the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater in Minneapolis and founder of the annual May Day Collaborative and Civic Celebration of Art. What started as a small parade of puppets, music, and happy people eventually grew to a cast of hundreds with an audience of thousands. Along the way, the object at the center of the celebration, the maypole, became the tree of life, with roots running deep into the community. 2020 hit the Heart of the Beast Theater hard, and due to financial concerns, the parade was put on hold. This year, the pandemic took its turn, and the celebration's hiatus was extended. Eventually, Spieler gave up the reins of the parade. Now, she's an independent artist and citizen of curiosity and wonder. According to her mission statement, her work celebrates the glorious yet unnoticed interconnection of all things the astounding intricacies of beauty and diversity and the eternal cycle of birth, death, and birth again.
2: I think that primarily I am a lover of this place, of this world, and I just keep recognizing that my life is a gift this gift of life that I am present in. And I think that I I often define my work with two eyes of wonder. Wonder with an exclamation point and wonder with a question mark. And the wonder with the exclamation point opens to the incredible diversity, beauty, fomenting wonder, like just awesomeness. And the question mark is like, Within this, this amazing gift, why is there so much disparity of poverty to our bodies and the earth and so much uh, hate, self-hatred, hatred of a, quote, other? I don't consider anyone other, but, quote, unquote, other. Um, why? And my life? My work has revolved around looking at both of those two things as honestly as possible, Openly opening my heart to the incredible wonders and trying to use my mind, my heart, and my hands towards uh, squarely looking at the, the woes that we also
3: live with. And then that's a huge, that's a huge responsibility. How does that show up in your work? What materials do you use to even begin to approach that? (laughs) I knew you wanted me to say (laughs) Order. <laughs> no, well, no, 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 I, I, no. No, not at all. This, I mean, this is a conversation I mean, and it's a conversation about getting to your work and in getting because what you're doing is incredible. To take on that yeah. task is a huge, that's a huge task to attempt. And it seems to me from looking well, at your work that you you do this on a regular basis. So then how do you get from that concept to putting it into putting it to action and, and having a physical representation of that?
2: Okay, well, I I don't think that I ever began with um, this sense of wonder of the exclamation point and the question mark um, as, as a guiding light. I think that that has come as people ask me about my work. I think basically I, I want to live as a human being, humbly listening in deeply to what is happening in my neighborhood, with my neighbors, in my family, in myself, um, and how does, how is that manifest in the larger world as well? So a lot of times it is just observing, um, observing what is happening. And a lot of times it's listening and talking and conversing and wrangling um, in the theater that developed in the Heart of the Beast theater. We did a lot of, especially um, coming into May Day time, when we were trying to find a theme of what is happening in this time and in this place, we would gather circles of people together, actually anyone who wanted to come to be part of those circles and say, what is, what is happening? What is rising? What is rising in your heart? Um, And what is our response to that? What can be done? Um, How is that held? Um, Where did this theme that we're talking about begin? How is it now? What might the trajectory into the future be? And then I've been really fortunate over the years to work with so many creative and deep thinkers. And because uh, we started using this form of puppet theater, inspired quite a bit from the Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont, Um, and the work of Peter Schumann and all of the fine artists there, of being able to take materials that are easily accessible, clay, cardboard, paper mache, and fashion them into images. The thing that's so wonderful about the world of puppet theater is that it's based on transformation. And yes, you can make something that looks rather realistic, but you can also craft images that are of things that are more interior, that are emotions, that are times past, that are prayers for the future, and you craft them into some kind of image and then they can interact. And it doesn't always have to be even in the human world, but also looking at the whole relationship of life, like that everything is interacting on this quote-unquote stage of this time and in this place and the incredible language of puppet theater enabled those kinds of conversations to happen in the flesh in the embodiment of movement and image and music and energy
3: and when you talk about meeting in these circles was that how you is that how the May Day celebration came to be
2: Because it encompasses
3: all these things that you're talking about.
2: It does. I mean, I think that in its early, early, early days, the very first May Day is we were in the dregs of the Vietnam War. And many of us who gathered were really peace seekers. And we were very tired of the kind of protests that went into the street and just shouted no, no, no. And we thought like, well, what else can happen? It's not that we don't believe that that's good and powerful, but what else can happen? And what is the what, what has happened where our neighborhood has become so um, divided? What about if we honor people coming out of their houses and here in Minnesota, that's in early spring, to see each other again and to simply welcome each other and to say, hello, and how are you? That to recognize that the building of community is one of the most profound acts of resistance that there is. One of the most radical acts that we can do is to bring people together
3: across that, which divides us. I talked to Dan Newman About his participation, because he's been there, he's been pretty much, I believe, at every single one of them that's happened. But he talked to me from the perspective of a participant. Talk to me about the themes (laughs) and how you developed the May Day celebrations. Where did that all come from? How did that come to be? The actual physicality well, of it. It's one thing to have a conversation and want to yeah. set something to welcome your neighbors, because that's the whole, you know, that's one of the founding tenets of, of May Day is that we're all coming out from this long, cold, dark period into the light. So then talk to me about how you create, how you come up with these themes in order to get people to come into the light, because they've, over the years, just expanded into these amazing thousands of people who show up for this event, who showed up for these events. Well, I think that what's important to remember is
2: that it didn't start out as thousands of people um, coming out into the street. Is that It started with just the essential desire to um, bring um, some of the images that we had in our theater out into the street so that um, they, they could live in the community. So we had, I think we had a large earth face. We had some wa- a water face. We had two accordions. Um, there were other things as well. Maybe there was a total of maybe, maybe, maybe 200 people, maybe not even that, but being in the street and walking together to the park. I think from the beginning, we did want to honor two things. We wanted to honor, um, humans and the change-bringing of our minds, hearts, and hands, and in that way that we were honoring the labor history of May Day, and some of the people in the very early first May Day um, were part of groups that were celebrating the labor May Day, and we wanted to honor the change-bringing of the earth, the green roots of May Day that rise at this time so incredibly much. So I always talked about the twining of the red roots of May Day, the human roots, the blood root, and the green roots, the green blood of the earth and twining. And really towards the end, I felt less and less comfortable saying the twining of those two roots because I see them as intrinsically melding into just this incredible brown roundness of our whole humanity of the earth relatives and not only human but all the all the earth relatives. So how you keep asking me how, how, how. It's just a matter of saying, hey, you want to do this? Here, let's do this. Let's meet at this time. Let's go into the street. Okay, that's the first year. The second year is like, okay, now what? Let's do this again. And let's this time let's look a little bit deeper. Like oh, let's think about what was happening this year and some of the trials and tribulations and, and recognize that, in a sense, we came through a storm. And that year, as the parade was going through in that way, we had some, quote-unquote, storm devils who kept attacking the parade. But people kept going on forward. And the third year, the third year is like a charm, right? Okay, now we're doing this again we actually have a couple different sections that are recognizable in a parade story is starting to develop. And you do it the third time, and it starts to have some traction. Way more people, people coming with things to participate. They knew what they were coming for. And then the fourth year, fifth year, around that time, we started having actual meetings where we talked about what the theme might be. But honestly, It wasn't until the 10th year. I mean, the theme and the ideas would come out of the staff of people that was connected to the theater. So this it's important to say that this grew out of a theater. That was a a full-time year's occupation. Um, And then we would do May Day as like a gift back to the community. So everyone was really embedded in the community. By the 10th year, we said, okay let's really talk about what this means, 10 years. So we gathered some 10-year-olds together and some people who were elders to talk about what is it to have something that started that's now that might continue into the future. And after that point, we said, oh, this is really great to have a group of people. And after that point, we always had community meetings. And the community meetings would be about 2 months before May Day and not not sooner than that because we wanted it to be really on the pulse of what was happening in this time in this place if you made a theme like a whole year in advance everything might have changed by that by that year and even still even still thinking like 2 months in advance sometimes there were Um, Things that would happen just like a couple weeks before May Day that we would quickly try to revolve around, for instance, the death of Prince. Suddenly, that became an important part of our ceremony that year, um, honoring Prince and the music of Prince and things like that.
3: With the Sandy, I don't know if you know this, but the whole the overarching with these podcasts, what we do is my my background is in art, history, and material culture. So I study people's relationship with objects and things, and I look at history through objects, not the history of an object. And so the overarching theme, if you want to call it for this podcast, is the Maypole, right? And so okay. we we start with an object, and then we start asking questions about that object. And a good object will lead you to better questions. So okay. my question for you is that it starts around May Day, but you don't call it a maypole. You call it the tree of life. Yeah. Talk to me about oh, the shift from...
2: I hope I
3: can meet you in person someday. I love. Oh, this. you will <laughs> because I'm coming to one of these celebrations. I'm, I, you know, I really because, and I'll get into it later on. But I have a long running history with Maypole, and I'm absolutely delighted with anybody who takes an, an idea, especially an idea that brings us together during difficult times. I'm your biggest fan. But let me get back to it. So then, talk to me about okay. that shift from. Um, the, may- the maypole to the Tree of Life.: OK, Wow. No one
2: has ever asked me this question about framing the Tree of Life stemming from specifically stemming from the maple. Uh, we knew that we wanted to be on the street, and we knew that we wanted to get people out of their houses, and we knew that we wanted to go to a park and we wanted people to gather together from a procession in a place together in a park. We raised the very first puppet that was, maybe we called the very first one a maypole. We might have, it had streamers on it and we came to the park, we raised it and people wove those streamers together. It was very spontaneous. It was not rehearsed ahead of time, other than maybe just the technique of, of how to raise it. And then it seemed like maybe the image of the tree, the tree of life, was further reaching, um, that it would encompass more breadth of understanding, because the trees, trees of life just span... It has a global span. And so the elements of the maypole, of the feet going into the ground and rising up as a pole with the streamers and the way out of the the pagan world, out of the world of um, Nordic Europe that celebrated a wheel of the year where the weaving of these strands was like the principles of the May Queen and the Green Man weaving together, assuring fertility for the agrarian cultures would flourish. And then, you know, we recognize that. Of course, we also recognize that the weaving together of strands also recognize the weaving together of all the elements of creation that we are part of and relatives in and seeing the tapestry that's created from the weaving as, you know, as our lives that are intrinsically connected. The fact of it being a pole that's on the ground is like a tree with the roots going down, 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 rising up into the sky. It is connecting the sky to the earth. I think that the image of the tree of life was something that rose because of wanting something that had roots in the ground with the rising up into the sky. So it's this pole, fundamental pole that connects the earth to the sky, but then it has these arms that reach out to embrace all of us like a tree and that hopefully like a tree that it would give breath and that it would um, you know breathe into our community and even though something might happen where it would fall that it would keep rising again in that way. So the, we put streamers on it like the maypole so that there could be a weaving. And that important weaving of what that means to to weave together as a community and then to see this amazing tapestry that rises. And it's a circular dance, but it goes in a couple different directions as a circle, weaving, weaving, weaving together. And I know that in the very early parts that meaning the ancient roots of uh, the May Day that is from Northern Europe that the Maypole developed as, uh, or at least my understanding is that the weaving of that was the important weavings of the May Queen and the Green Man um, and that um, energy that melds together to create the seeds that get planted in the ground that assure a good harvest which is, of course, the sustenance of all coming into the summer and then laying down again into the winter. So I think we wanted something that had elements of
3: that embrace of the community. Sandy, the reason why I wanted—well, I have a long love affair with the maypole that started when I was in grade school. I went to school in Milwaukee, in Browning Elementary, in a high German area. You know that I that I was raised in. Did you do the dance? Did you did you do maypole dancing? Yeah, we did. The, we we didn't. Fun. I don't think it was the correct maypole dancing, but we did run around a pole with ribbons. What I'm wondering, and what the reason why I want to talk about the maypole is not only because of my love for it. But in light of the current pandemic, because it's this it, to see, to call it a celebration seems naive and also dismissive of the tragedy that people have gone through during this pandemic. And I understand with the Maypole and May Day, we have that element of the Haymarket from Chicago. We have the element of the descent in Cleveland in 1919. The Maypole and May Day has all of this mixing of both. Birth, like your statement, the cycle of birth, death, and birth again, all of that is sort of mixed up in there. And I was hope, so hoping that we'd be further along than we are right now. And I thought this would be a glorious way, you know, maybe rather than creating a new celebration or a new ceremony or a new observation of this time period, of this coming out of darkness, that we could, we could somehow make this part of the May Day celebration, So, then my question to you is Sandy, if we were able to have a Tree of Life celebration right now, what would that look like? Um,
2: You know, I just cannot answer that um, by myself because such questions are trained inside me now of the process of it being a conversation with many people. But honestly, I would have, because we're here in Minneapolis, I would say two things. May Day for me is always about the twining of the life-giving breath of the world. So honoring the trees rising and the breath, us being able to breathe. And then because we have just seen uh, a glimmer of some kind of hope in the conviction of the policeman who held George Floyd down where he could not breathe, that that sense of breathing might become an image for recognizing uh, how important for all of us to breathe. And the fact that breathing was a big part of COVID and people who were dying of COVID who could not breathe. So, Recognizing primarily, fundamentally, that when we are born, our lives are marked from our first breath. And when we die, our lives are marked from our last breath. So recognizing that breathing is what brings us into communion, into concert with all that is with all the beings of this world, human and non-human that have life and that trees are a major part of it, our lungs and the people who are the tree planters who are recognizing that importance at this time and recognizing the devastation of our forests and the devastation of peoples. I think it may be, Who knows? Maybe it would be connected with that. But, I mean, here in Minneapolis, we and in my neighborhood and this neighborhood of where the In the Heart of the Beast puppet and mask theaters May Day happened, we are right here in the epicenter of the major conversations happening about racial justice and connected with security systems and policing, the history of policing, the future of what that is, and how we hold each other as a community. And there is so much incredible, good, brilliant thinking that is rising from the community here and the young people and the old people together. I think that it's, um, I I long for when some of this could be crafted together in a ceremony such as might happen on May Day.
3: Dan Newman's introduction to the Tree of Life came as the Vietnam War was ending.
5: I was living in a collective, a commune in South Minneapolis called the Almond Tree Household. And we were a social justice collective associated with a Lutheran, with the Lutheran Church in terms of background, uh, but not any kind of... Um, that the building we were in was an old... I was living in a commune in a former convent. One of the things we'd read was a book by the theologian Harvey Cox called The Feast of Fools and from like 1968. And in the Feast of Fools, Harvey Cox talks about the tradition of ceremony and celebration and ritual as the way that people and cultures envision a different future. The Feast of Fools was a medieval celebration ritual where for one day the social order was upturned and choir boys were bishops and donkeys were priests and and everything was upturned for a day. And it took the combined power of the church and state a couple of centuries to wipe out that tradition. Mardi Gras, out of that, some of that tradition, May Day, I mean, all kinds of things that come out of this tradition of, of people collectively re-envisioning a different future, and that ceremony and ritual and art are a big part of that. We had a lot of activities going on in this building. We had a building, so we community groups met there. There was a feminist theater that got started there and met there. There were, you know, uh, men's uh, groups starting there. There's all kinds of things that happened around the building. I come from a Scandinavian background. I'm a, you know, Minnesota Swede. Uh, Maypoles, May Day were things that I grew up with. I mean, we used to have a little Maypole at, this, at school. You know, we'd have May baskets when I was a kid. So that idea of coming out of your and you know winter's tough in Minnesota. So the idea of coming out in the spring together and having a ceremony together. The other thing was it was very it was it was overtly political in the first year because it was also the the Vietnam War was still going on, and so it was it was um, you know some of the activities in the first year were around the you know res- resistance to the war in Vietnam, and the war ended uh, just shortly before the first May Day. So it was now it became a celebration of the end of the war. With May Day, the tradition has been, there's a theme that comes out of a, a community meetings and community conversations, which is one of the things I set, think that sets this thing apart from others, is that there's major community conversation that happens. That conversation is changing and needs to include more members of the community, more people from the more diverse backgrounds. Our community is, is changing in the composition of May Day needs to change with it. Uh, Mid-South Minneapolis has always been an area of minority, uh, high significant minority populations. It's always been the area where immigrants come. My grandparents' parents came and lived in South Minneapolis as immigrants. So I think it becomes a tool to express what people are feeling. And how you tap into what people are feeling is is the ultimate question. How do you do that? Whose voices are heard? How are those voices expressed? Everybody's uh, gets a chance to shine. Everybody's an artist. Everybody's a performer. And everybody gets cheered and supported in the way of doing that. Um, you know, that's a beautiful thing. People coming together to make puppets and to make floats and the workshops are, you know, uh, just all kinds of people coming together. Every kid can be on stage in a, and be the star of their show. My granddaughter is about six years old, five, six years old. I guess she was about six. So we're at the theater. At, it's a holiday show. And after the show, my granddaughter says to me, Grandpa, how old do you have to be to be a puppeteer? And I said, Well, let's go ask Masa. Masa is one of the performers. He's backstage. This shows up. Let's go ask Masa what he thinks. So we go backstage with my granddaughter. I introduce you know, Masa. This is Jesse. Jesse. This is Masa. Jesse has got a question. Jesse asks Masa, How old do you have to be a, puppet, be a puppeteer? And Masa gets looks at her real closely and rubs his chin and says, "Well, I think you're old enough right now." And the look on her face was like, "Wow!" And she was, you know, I mean? it's like, "Yes, this is possible for anybody." I'm, I'm like the the crew chief for the, uh, the the Tree of Life crew. That's my main job. We have to build the puppet every year. It comes apart in pieces, so we have to, you know, take a few hours to put the thing, put it together. It's too heavy to carry for all that time for us old people now. So it's on the cart under a shroud, and when it comes to the park, it's under a shroud, and when it gets onto the parade into the ceremony ground, it's under a shroud until that the sun arrives, and then the shroud comes out, comes off, and the tree of life goes up, and then it's performed. It circles, and it's and it and there's a maypole dance, and then the the arms come together as a as a blessing in the front. This is just the most wonderful thing I do in a year. It's the high holiday for so many people. It's evolved into a beautiful, uh, beautiful time for folks to come together. People coming out of their houses. People coming and seeing each other. People you haven't seen for a year. Uh, you see around May Day. The, um, it's it's a it's a gift to be able to participate in May Day, and is a gift for us all. And the tree of life is a gift for us all. And that's how we talk about it. And and so we, you receive the gift while giving the gift. And, uh, you know, that's what it takes. Uh, it's just, uh, it's not part of my identity. I mean, it's like who I am. I do the tree of life. I do the May Day. Um, it's, I'm, you know, it's my legacy. One of my, I, you know, I think one of the greatest legacies I plan to leave behind is that we did this. You know, um. We did this together. We did it collectively. We shared a vision, and we kept that vision alive. You know, the mission of Heart of the Beast is to bring people together for the common good through the power of puppet and
1: mask performance.
4: Just as spring always comes, winter will always return. Warm days will give way to fall, which will inevitably lead to another winter, as the cycle of the seasons marches forward. And just as winter always comes, a pandemic never really fades. It's likely that sometime in the next year, we will return to some semblance of normal. Businesses will reopen, music and art festivals will come back, and we will slowly begin the process of picking up the pieces from the past year. But COVID-19 will continue, It's likely to remain with us for years and potentially decades to come as the virus evolves and changes. New variants will emerge, which will require new tactics to fight. So what do we get from the past year? What is the result of a year in isolation of the more than half a million Americans lost to the pandemic?
1: Well, I I think there are a few things we can glean from this past year. I I think the first of them is that pandemics happen and and viruses like SARS-CoV-2 emerge unpredictably.
4: Dr. Thomas Friedrich is a professor of pathobiological sciences at UW-Madison and an expert on the evolution and emergence of viruses. He says the most important thing we're bringing out of the COVID-19 pandemic is the infrastructure to fight and suppress future outbreaks before they happen.
1: You know, there was a small handful of people who were sounding the alarm about bat coronaviruses saying that these look like viruses that that could cause a pandemic in the future. But, uh, you know, most of us didn't have our eye on that particular ball, and we're not necessarily looking out for those viruses. Although I will point out that I I myself was part of a pandemic planning exercise back in 2018, where we were tasked to kind of think about a, a response to an emerging pandemic virus and the scenario we were given is, was eerily similar to the scenario that from which the the actual coronavirus emerged. So it's definitely something that's been on the minds of a lot of, of biologists and and epidemiologists and and I think kind of disaster planner type people for a while that, that there could be a pandemic. And so I think it's important to remember that that like as disruptive as this pandemic has been, as unpredictable as the start was, as unforeseeable as the end, if there is one, we should take this lesson to heart and say that that this is not going to be the last pandemic. And the next one may be more disruptive than this. So what are things we can do to prepare for future pandemics to hopefully respond faster in a more coherent fashion? How do we um, kind of get behind the eight ball early in this pandemic? And, And what can we do in the future to be able to respond faster. Second, as we've already talked about, I I don't think this pandemic is going to have an end per se. There's not going to be a day on which we all get together and celebrate the end of the pandemic like you would celebrate the end of World War II. The, The virus doesn't sign a surrender document. What happens is we learn to live with it. And, you know, cases will decline, but they probably will not go away. And as long as there are Pockets of virus transmission in the world. And those pockets are most of the world right now. We should remember, like the developing world, is not going to get you know vaccine in in large quantities for at least another year, probably. So as long as there is ongoing transmission, there is not only the human toll of that transmission where it's occurring, um, which we should be concerned about. But even if we're just concerned about ourselves, that transmission could lead to the emergence of new variants that escape vaccine-induced immunity and require vaccine updates could come back and cause disease here, um, just like the initial coronavirus did. So, you know, the, the basically all of these things are teaching us that we need to be aware uh, of what viruses are circulating in, uh, in the world and in our own communities, and we need to be able to turn that awareness into, um, you know, an epidemiological, medical, and policy response as fast as possible.
4: So let's say 10 years down the road, will COVID-19 become just as normal to everyday life as influenza and getting a yearly flu shot? Or is that like comparing apples to oranges?
1: Well, I think it's difficult to predict with, you know, but um, if if I had to guess, I would say that, that yes, the, this virus is going to become endemic in the human population, that it's going to circulate in humans from now on, and that we may need periodic vaccine updates, whether that's an annual booster shot or less frequent than that, but very much akin to the influenza situation. And I think there's sort of two things to think about there. One is like the flu virus, the coronavirus may evolve so that that it evades detection by our immune response. So, you know, people who've been infected or vaccinated, they have immunity to that virus that infected them or the, the vaccine that they got but the virus may change over time to the point where it's no longer recognizable by your immune system. And so we may need to to update vaccines for that reason. There's already some suggestion that that might be the case uh, for some of these variants. And second of all, we don't know how long immunity after infection or vaccination will last at a protective level. And so some people have said that for other coronaviruses, we know about four so-called seasonal coronaviruses that cause more like the common cold in humans. We think that one reason why people can get those more than once is that, that um, your immune response just sort of goes away a little bit faster than you'd like. And so after a little bit of time, you're susceptible again. And so we might need to get regular boosters for that reason, even if mutation is not that big a concern
4: you mentioned that you had worked on a pandemic task force and that a lot of what you worked on is very similar to what we've undergone in the past year. Now that raises a question, uh, is this pandemic out of the norm for what we had previously expected or is it pretty in line with, you know, pandemic simulations and we just weren't really prepared from a logistics standpoint to respond to it?
1: I think that's, that's a good question and kind of a big question to answer. I mean, so we've known um, you know, since 1918 that respiratory viruses can cause devastating global pandemics. There was the 1918 influenza um, that was thought to have led to the deaths of somewhere like um, 50 million people worldwide, it's difficult to estimate, but something like that. And so ever since then, there have been, been three influenza pandemics since 1918. So we know this can happen. know and we've watched the emergence of other viruses that have caused you know regional or global outbreaks like zika the west african ebola outbreak of 2014 i mean these are just some some recent headline grabbing outbreaks people who study viruses know that that there's a just vast amount of viral diversity many different kinds of viruses infecting animals all over the world Humans are disrupting the habitats of those animals in every corner of the world, not just in China or Southeast Asia, but all over. And so while we cannot predict which virus may cause the next pandemic or when or under what circumstances exactly that pandemic may occur, um, the idea that there could be a viral pandemic is, is like pretty well accepted by a wide variety of scientists and policymakers. So, so like broadly speaking, do we expect there to be pandemics? Yes. I think what what took a lot of us by surprise in the scientific community is the, the degree and speed with which the response to the pandemic in our country and elsewhere became politicized. And the the degree to which we had to counter misinformation and disinformation to get people to uh, to kind of respond, use evidence-based responses that would would, you know keep the population safe. You know, I think scientists like to think that like if we give people the facts, then then they'll respond accordingly. But it, it didn't turn out that way. And I think that has brought up a kind of blind spot in pandemic planning. Uh, which is how do you communicate the, you know, maybe difficult and, and sometimes uncertain science about a new virus to the public in a way that earns their trust and gets people to have a community-minded response where people will take actions that, that may sacrifice a little bit of their own freedom or their own, like, what they might want to do for the good of the community. And, and that was much more challenging than I expected.
4: As you mentioned, politicians especially have raised and spread doubt about accepted health and science policy over the course of the past year. Now, do we risk tearing down the very infrastructure we've spent the past year building purely due to the increasing politicization of public health and science? You know, when the next pandemic rolls around, is there a risk that that infrastructure will just be gone?
1: Well. I, I think that's an important question, and it is difficult to answer. I think there are both positive and and somewhat concerning signs on the horizon. So, in the positive light, I, I think that um, you know you may have heard that the uh, American Rescue Plan, the the one point nine trillion dollar COVID relief package that that was recently uh, enacted, includes. billion in new funding for what's called genomic surveillance or genomic epidemiology. That was specifically, interestingly, that that was sponsored initially by Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin. So it has a, a local connection. And that funding is designed not only to track variants of concern of the COVID virus that we keep hearing about in the news. But is very consciously designed to kind of leave behind an infrastructure that will be there to detect emerging and re-emerging viruses in the future. So, so it's specifically designed to, you know, leave in place an infrastructure that that will help us better respond to the next pandemic, whatever that might be. Because I think historically, you know, we've seen kind of boom and bust cycles, you know, in what virologists sometimes call SARS classic. So there was an original SARS back in 2002, 2003, that we kind of averted a potential pandemic back then. I think through um, some good public health interventions in, in affected areas and just luck. And so after that, there was interest in coronaviruses for a while, but then the funding for that kind of dried up because there wasn't a pandemic threat anymore as people perceived it. You know, similarly, there was some interest in pandemic planning after the 2009 influenza pandemic, and that kind of waned. And then after Zika, and then there was a response specifically for Zika. And then after that got under control, then then that kind of waned. And so we 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 have hopefully learned through many of these cycles in the last 20 years that you can't just constantly be responding. You have to have tools in place, you know, on the day the pandemic gets going, so that you can respond quickly and hopefully shut it down sooner than than we've been able to do for past outbreaks. I think that's very positive. So we're seeing kind of a different mindset on the part of many legislators who control the funding for this infrastructure. On the other hand, as I mentioned, there's this politicization of everything, not just pandemic response, but everything. And, And there's, you know, increasing, I think, public distrust from many sides in figures of authority, whatever they may be, including academics and government scientists. And so it it just becomes harder for people to to get a coherent message across to a large proportion of the population who we all need to get on board with responses to a pandemic. So I I think that part of future pandemic planning is going to have to include how do we better tailor our messaging? How how do we engage trusted leaders in multiple communities across different, you know, demographics and different areas of, of the country to help get the word out so that people are able to respond better to the pandemic and not have as, as you know, fractured and chaotic a response as we had this time?
4: There's also this interconnectivity of climate change and pandemics, you know, medical and environmental experts predict that as climate change continues, uh, these pandemic level events will become more and more frequent. So will once every, you know, 25, 10 year pandemics become the new normal if we if we don't address climate change?
1: Well, uh, I think that I mean, you can't say that, that, okay, pandemics are going to happen every 10 years unless we address climate change. But. You know, we've already been through a litany of outbreaks, pandemics, and and kind of near misses of the 21st century so far. SARS, MERS, um, 2009 influenza, West African Ebola in 2014, Zika in 2015, 2016, et cetera, et cetera. So there are absolutely increasing outbreaks that could lead to pandemics. And they are driven by multiple factors, including climate change and just human disruption of the natural world. So, in a world that is more crowded and in which kind of natural cycles and natural habitats are being increasingly disrupted by human activity, you know, animal populations moving around due to climate change, et cetera, et cetera, humans are going to encounter more animal pathogens. And those animal pathogens, because humans are, are more numerous and more crowded together are gonna have better opportunities to touch off larger scale outbreaks than, than they might have done 100 or 200 years ago. So I think that is, is pretty well accepted in the scientific community. Uh, you know, Will there be some kind of regularity to it? Uh, no, I mean, like, as I said, the, the, uh, the actual pandemic event is very difficult to, to predict, but the idea that something like this is gonna happen in the future I think is fairly well accepted. Pandemics may, like we may be able to trace a beginning to to pandemics when uh, an animal virus crossed into humans and started the pandemic, but but they don't really have an end. The virus doesn't surrender. We sort of have a detente, and I expect that over the the next two or three years we will we will arrive at that detente with this coronavirus. But I hope that we learn lessons about you know not only the scientific things we can do to prepare for the next pandemic but the societal political socioeconomic things that we need to do to prepare for the next pandemic and hopefully meet it with better preparedness and cohesion
4: You've been listening to Refrangible, a production of the Center for Design and Material Culture at the University of Wisconsin-Madison.
3: A special thanks to all of our guests who contributed their expertise for this episode. Sandy Spieler and Dan Newman from In the Heart of the Beast Puppet and Mask Theater and Thomas Friedrich of UW-Madison. Our audio at the top of this episode was recorded from the CDMC's Threads 2021 event entitled Reality, Virtual Design and Fashion Event.
4: If you haven't already, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can also give us a shout out on social media and let us know what you think about the show. Or if you have any thoughts or recommendations for future episodes, just tweet at uw_cdmc. And be sure to tune in next month when the object at the center of our discussion will be the sewing machine.
3: On one hand, textile creation has long been an art of necessity as makers mended and created clothing and often used remnants of fabric to make quilts. But gradually, the creation of these textiles has grown from necessity to high art.
4: Keep an eye out for that episode next month. Until then, I'm Jonah Chester.
3: I'm your host, Jennifer Fields, and we'll see you next time.